morning. Welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. Can we welcome all of our campuses, our Appleton campus, online campus, Germantown campus? We are delighted that you're here with us today as we began a brand new series called The Persecuted Church. And, and um, as we do, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. I'm actually going to cover two chapters today. No, it won't be twice as long. Sorry. But uh, anyhow, it's uh, Acts chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen when we get there. Uh, but uh, we're beginning this new series. And, and we have been talking throughout the springtime, actually from the winter all the way through in the spring, about we've kind of been walking through Acts chapter 1 through 5 and, and the Holy Spirit and how the New Testament church began. And, and you just see this unprecedented... Um, move of God in a perpetual way. And uh, actually the church that we are today in the world b was birthed out of Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way through. But in, verse, in chapter 6, we see persecution begins in the church. And persecution that begins in Acts chapter 6 does not stop and will not stop until God comes back. Until Jesus Christ comes back. Until what we believe is the rapture of the church according to Revelation. And so we're going to look at these next several chapters of Acts. And we're going to look at some prominent characters or prominent people that God used in, in this period of the church. And, and as we do this series, one thing I, I would recommend, I try to recommend resources to you. But a guy named Eric Metaxas uh, wrote a book called Seven Men. And this man doesn't, this book doesn't deal with any of the individuals that we're going to be speaking about, but it talks about men that God used really within the last hundred or so, two to three hundred years of our lifetime, uh, and that did incredible things. And there were, um, there were some individuals in here that I knew all of which, but I did not know to the degree and even to the Christian side of it. And so I encourage you, if what we're talking about really kind of amps you, uh, Great book. Matter of fact, uh, I'm reading a book that, that, that Metaxas wrote on uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian in the last 100 years, who was very astute and very acclaimed and uh, gave his life uh, part of the uh, Valkyrie attempt upon uh, Hitler's life, but as a, not as a Jew, but as a, as a German uh, citizen, uh, went and died on behalf of of the Jewish people because of the injustice. And um, just amazing stuff that's in this book and, and even in uh, the autobiography or the biography, excuse me, that Metaxas writes about Bonhoeffer. And so I try to keep you kind of surrounded if you're looking for a good read and you're looking for something that will encourage you and inspire you, uh, some great stuff there. As we walk through these chapters of, of Acts and looking at the persecuted church of the next four weeks, we're going to begin with Stephen today. Next week, we're going to go to Philip. Uh, the following week, we're going to go with a guy named Saul, who actually is a part of the storyline of Stephen that we'll talk about today, and then Peter, and how God used them in a great way. I want to remind you, too, that, that the ideology of persecution is not a first century issue. It's very much a 21st century issue. And I want to begin with asking you a question. It's simply this. How would you respond by being required to die for your faith in Jesus Christ? How would you respond by being put in a situation where you had to die just simply because you were a follower of Jesus Christ? 
Now, I know for us and in America, that's a very crazy idea. Uh, it's something that none of us have been faced with. Uh, prayerfully, hopefully, none of us in our lifetime will be faced with. But it's something that we see in Scripture. It's something that every one of the disciples faced, except for John, who wrote the book of Revelation. And they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him alive, but he would not die. Can you imagine? And so they exile him to the Isle of Patmos, and they jail him. We don't know when he died, because he was lost after that point, except for the fact that he wrote the book of Revelation. And it was sent in letter form to the church of the first century. And that's the last known recording of John. This is something that in today's time, since I preached yesterday, there have been people in our world that have physically died for what you and I are doing right now. There are places in our world where you can't do what we're doing. And we know that cognitively, but I hope over the next several weeks that I'm going to take you through some interviews, through some emails, through some people that are going to join me here on stage. I'm going to be doing every one of these messages and I'm going to take you, and I want to take you there. And I just want you to think, what would I do if I were put in that place where as a father, they came into my home because I was a follower of Jesus Christ, and they asked me to renounce Christ. And if I did, they would let me live. And not only me, but my children. But if I don't, they will kill me. And not only me, but my children and my spouse. See, I think this is something for us, even though it feels so far-fetched, far it's an idea, it's an action, it's a reality in a lot of the known world today. Even just persecution that doesn't lead to death, just simply for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's what I do believe. I do believe that we are coming into an age in America where not only is it not politically correct to believe what you and I believe, but we will encounter hostility in our time. And in our children's time, probably, we'll, we'll, we'll encounter a very uncomfortable, a very uncomfortable persecution of the church in North America, in the United States. Right now, in the evangelical church, which would be the Protestant church, uh, uh, from the, that's what we would be, we're the fastest growing segment of the church population, but Christianity is in decline. All statisticians and all futurists outside the church and inside the church say this, that the church will undergo such duress over the next 25 years that many people will leave the doors of the church because they simply cannot handle the persecution. They simply cannot handle the malignment. They simply cannot handle uh, uh, what the world will look at as a very intolerant, very narrow-minded, very uneducated type of religion. They will market it as outdated. They will proclaim it as something that is archaic and ancient, as something that is relegated to centuries that have gone by, and it's something that has no place in the world in which we live. So it leads me to a question I want you to ponder today. Then as a Christ follower, what am I living for? What am I living for? If you're taking notes, just simply write that down. What am I living for? Why am I here? Why am I following Jesus? Is this just something that my parents did? Is this just something that my grandparents did? Is this just something that's convenient? Is this something that because I have nothing else to do? I don't think that's the case. Is this just, what is this? What is this? 
I had someone ask me a great question after, after the Saturday evening service. They simply said this, Pastor, I heard you talk about Muslims and Islamic views, and I have a friend that's, that's Muslim, and don't they believe in the same God that we believe in? I mean, they traced their genealogy through Muhammad back through Abraham, and Abraham served God. Isn't that the same God? Don't we all kind of believe the same thing? This is the kind of rhetoric that goes on in our world. This is the things that your children are facing, that if you don't talk to them and explain to them and understand that, and you don't have an ideology of it and, and a grasp and a theology of it, according to God's Word, everybody just kind of don't all roads lead to God, and who died and made you God. And isn't that narrow-minded to say that Jehovah God, the God that you serve, the God of the Christians, is the only one, and everybody else is going to hell? I didn't write the book. I don't get editorial privilege over the book. So how did you answer the young man? We'll talk about that in this series. But uh, these are questions that are coming up. These are things that are coming up. And by the way, no, they're not the same people. Because if you believe in the triune Godhead, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the three in one, the Muslim faith does not believe in a triune Godhead. They geographically link their lineage back through Muhammad to Abraham who served Jehovah God but they denounce Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and we understand according to Genesis chapter 1 Genesis chapter 2 Genesis chapter 3 that the Trinity the triune God had a father son and Holy Spirit were all present at that time let us make man in our image and in our likeness so they're not the same person but this world would like to tell your kids that. This world would like to tell you that. This world would like to paint you and I as people who believe that there's only one way, Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. Again, I didn't write the book. But we live in a world where that statement, that statement is under attack. That statement in our area where you and I live is under attack. There are churches... Within, within a driving distance of where you and I reside in the state of Wisconsin, that, that basically they, they censor that statement to go, you really can't say that. I'm telling you, the persecuted church is not a first century thing. It's a 21st century thing. And I hope that I show you that over these next couple of weeks. Acts chapter 6. We see this person, this life of Stephen. And in Stephen, we see some characteristics that I want to look at. So if you'll look with me at Acts chapter 6, verse number 1, the Bible says, In those days when the number of the disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic, or the Greek Jews among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, the disciples, gathered together and they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them. And they will give, uh, excuse me, and, and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pre pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And also Philip. Now, the rest of these names, I'm just going to announce, pronounce, I'm from Arkansas. So, like, this sounds like med medicines, don't they? Prochorus, Nanakar, Timon, is that like with Pumbaa? I don't know. Parmenius, Nicholas from Antioch. So, you're not the only one that does that. I, I do that. I'm just like, I don't know how you say that. So, anyhow, 
Uh, and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs from among the people. I want you to note the, a problem here. This is very interesting to me. It's kind of a parenthetical thought. But the first five chapters of the book of Acts, there is this amazing movement of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the church of Jesus Christ is birthed. People are coming to faith in, in unreal numbers. Every single day, the church is growing. And it's going from just 120 in the upper room. And these are just weeks. Guys, this is just a couple of months after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is all new. This is all fresh. This is all happening in real time. But I want you to notice what paused, what stopped the work of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't Satan. It wasn't a theological dispute. It was a fact that there were a group of people that were not receiving their fair allotment of food. Sounds like my kind of people. Hey, right? I, I didn't get what they got. Have you ever been like that? The church buffet? You always get first. I, I didn't get what they got. What happened? Where did that go? It's like at the men's breakfast, they always have this caramelized bacon that I never get because Scott Mankey gets a whole plate full. <laughs> That's what stops it. And when there's a move of God happening, most of the time in the church, it's not some devil around every corner that's stopping it. It's typically there's a faction of people having a dispute with a different faction of people because the church was perfect till you showed up, right? That's kind of how it works. And so, it's a joke, folks, but if it, truth hits and hurts, sorry. So, and they, they, they come together, and there needs to be leadership that's involved to help deal with the situation and work through and pastor through the problem to continue to move forward. We see that once they remedy this, that the church continues to move forward. It will be changed because persecution will be introduced. But the reality is that the work of the Holy Spirit will continue. Now, there are two groups of Jews that are living in this particular scenario in Jerusalem. You have the Grecian Jews. So they have a Greek um, background. Uh, they, speak in, they speak Greek. Um, most of their customs come from, they have, kind of have a Greek background to them, but they're not in opposition to what they believe. Then you have the Hebraic Jews who were strictly very much like these Old Testament cultural Hebrews. And so these two ways that they did things kind of war against each other, Right? So, so one, you know, had toast and the other one had biscuits. And, and they, they had two kinds of bread. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is just, these are cultural differences. They're not religious. They're not spiritual. But there's this tension. And, and, and but both of these groups are becoming Christ followers. And the church is growing quickly. And, and so the Grecian Jews, widows, were not getting their fair share of the, of the of food and of services the way the Hebraic widow Jews were. Now, this is just a thought. You have to understand, this is prior to any type of social services that were happening beyond, from the government. This is true. In America, if everybody who claimed to attend church in America tithed, they brought their 10%, every single social welfare issue of feeding the poor and taking care of the elderly would be met so far beyond it that there would be no need for governmental, state, or federal taxes to be involved. That's how God designed this thing. We read in, in previous uh, chapters here in the book of Acts that they had all things in common and that they brought, they brought everything and they took care of everyone. 
But there's this discrimination that's happening that's going on between these Grecian Jew widows and between these Hebraic Jew widows. And so this is brought to the attention of the apostles, to the leadership of the church. And, and the apostles, they realize two things. Number one, it's not good for them to be taken away from the prayer and teaching of God's word. But it's also a very important issue to take care of the poor and the needy. There's a tension. Can I help you with this? If you've been in church at all for very long, there will always be tensions in church. There is never going to be a church, especially a growing church where the Holy Spirit is moving, that there's not tension. The responsibility of the leadership of the church is not to eradicate tension in the church, but to manage tension. Because tension in and of itself is dynamic and healthy. This is how it works. And so the apostles come in and they have this tension. We're called to prayer and the teaching of the word, but we know that these needs need to be met. And so here was the solution. They select seven men, good reputations, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Those are the qualifications. And these seven men will look after the administration and the care of the poor and the widows. And the apostles then will be freed up to devote themselves to the prayer and the teaching of God's word. It's interesting, all seven of those names that I could not pronounce very well are all Greek. So they actually take those who are being offended and they put their very own over them to minister and to make sure that that's being taken care of. Here's another interesting note as you look at this. This is where church staffing comes from. As a church grows, you need to have staff. Why? Because staff is there to take care and minister to the needs of the church. If you remember at Life Church, if you're in a, what we would call a covenant relationship where I can count on you as a pastor and you can count on me as a pastor, we can count on each other, you should, if you are in need or have need, we should be here to minister to your need to the very best of our ability. Period. No exception, no whatever. That's what we're here for. At the same time, that doesn't mean that it's a person. Contrary to popular opinion, as a senior pastor, I don't have an S on my chest. I know I look like Clark Kent. But I am just one person. So it may not be me, and this is what they're showing. It may not be the apostles that are taking care of that particular situation. But it is their responsibility to manage that tension and to make sure that that need, that issue, that people group is met. That's why we have youth pastors and kids pastors and early childhood directors. That's why we have, we, we have small group leaders. And, and we've got all types of systems that are reflexive and simple in the church in order to minister to the needs. That's what's going on. I want you to notice, though, that there's verse 8. There's one that sets apart from those seven men. His name was Stephen. And the characteristic that we see was that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen's full of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying this, and if you're taking notes, you can write that down. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit because he will be the first martyr, the first one that will endure the full brunt of persecution of the New Testament church. And how? What do we learn from him? Well, first of all, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you that if you and I are going to withstand any type of persecution, mild or something that would even cost us our life, we have to be men and women full of the Spirit of God. It's not enough that the apostles were full of the Spirit of God, but this guy who was called to wait on tables, this guy that was called to meet the needs immediately, this guy that was called to be a crisis first responder was full of the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's not just enough that the pastor's full of the power of the Holy Spirit, or the worship leader's full of the Holy Spirit, or the youth pastor's full of the Holy Spirit, or the executive pastor's full of the Holy Spirit, but the door greeter needs to be 
full of the Holy Spirit. And the child care worker needs to be full of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. And those are leading life groups and ministry groups. And every single one of us, if we proclaim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be men and women full of the Spirit of God. Why? Because we don't know what's going to face us. That's the working of the Holy Spirit. That's the reason why we're given the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is not for the sweet by and by, but for the here and now. Let's keep reading in verse 9 of Acts chapter 6. So opposition arose from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well in the provinces of Sicily and of Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand against the wisdom of the what? The Spirit. As he spoke, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred the people up and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen. They had him arrested. This is the Israeli government that was under the Roman occupancy. They had their ability to do their own judicial matters at that level. This is the same group of people that arrested Jesus. This is just weeks after that. So they seized Stephen, they brought him before the Sanhedrin, they produced false witnesses who testified the same thing they did to Jesus. This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place, speaking the temple of God, and against the law, that would be the Old Testament for us. For we have heard him say that, that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Just like mine. That hurts. That's what you need to know. Appleton, I hope you're not laughing right now. You see, I want you to understand something. Stephen doesn't limit himself just to feed the poor. Verse 8 says that he was a man full of God's power, full of God's grace. He did miracles, signs, and wonders among the people. Now, that's a powerful door greeter. That's a powerful usher. No pressure, ushers. That, that's a powerful person. He, he was preaching publicly in the synagogues because other Grecian Jews had not yet converted, had not had taken issue with him. They tried to argue with him, but they could not stand up. Why? Because he spoke, because, because when he spoke, he was full of the Holy Spirit who spoke on his behalf. Remember the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will give you words. The Holy Spirit will fill your mouth with words in those moments that you don't know what to say. That's exactly what happens. And since they couldn't argue with him, they conspired against him, and they accused him of blasphemy against God and against the law of Moses. And because it was a temple, uh, and, and Moses and the teaching that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down. These are serious charges. But I also want you to understand, if you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the exact same charges that they charged Jesus with. These are the exact same people that charged Jesus. These are the exact same accusations that they charged Jesus. And now they're taking, they're coming against Stephen. But in all of this, the Bible says as he spoke, he had the face of an angel. He, there was a calmness. There was a peace. I want you to notice, Stephen had boldness. He was not only was he full of the power of the Holy Spirit, but he had boldness. He had boldness. 
And this is important to understand because, because the reality is, is if you and I are going to stand and live our lives in a way that's pleasing unto God, even when the church may be persecuted, we have to live our life in boldness. We have to live our life even if it's countercultural, countercultural. And we've got to lean onto the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit to let our face be that of an angel, to let our mouths to be filled full of the Spirit of God. But we have to have boldness to stand up and to proclaim, boldness to go against the flow, boldness to do what God's called us to do. And as we keep reading, the story unfolds. If you've seen the movie A Few Good Men, you can imagine that type of courtroom drama that's going on. He goes on a 52-verse rant. I'm not going to read it all today. It's a, it's a sermon where basically he shuts these men down and he goes through the entire story and puts the gospel in his sermon. And what Stephen does is he answers the accusations against him. And in the process, he accuses his accusers and calls them to faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 7. And I want to look at the very end of this. When he finishes his message, verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, which means they're unholy. You are just like your ancestors who always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? No. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, which is Jesus. He's speaking specifically there to John the Baptist. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, who they're speaking of, Jesus. This is all very fresh. You will have received the law that has, was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. You know better than this is what he's saying. Look at verse 54. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, there it is again. Now, just let me stop here. Anytime in a passive scripture, it keeps saying the same phrase or the same word over and over again. It's give, it's, especially in threes, it's given a special emphasis to let you know there's something going on there. Daniel, the spirit of excellence. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. This is the third time that it, it, it pronounces that. He, and, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is the only place that we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He's seated in every other place in Scripture at the right hand of the Father, but here he is standing, which denotes the fact that he is showing reverence and respect and he's welcoming Stephen, who's about to give his life for the cause of Jesus Christ. He said, look, I see the heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we'll talk about in two weeks. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep and he died. The first martyr. Persecution begins in this moment against the church. And it will not relent and it will not stop according to scripture until Jesus comes back for the rapture of the church. But in all of this, Stephen had peace. I want you to catch that. Not only was he full of the Holy Spirit, not only did he have boldness, but he had peace. I'm telling you, if you were throwing rocks at me, I would pick them up and throw them back at you. 
But what does he do in that moment? He doesn't look even at them. He looks to the heavens. He doesn't even see them. He's looking to the heavens. All he sees is Jesus. This isn't metaphorical, although it can be. But, but the reality is, is in the reality, he has his eyes on Jesus. He sees Jesus. He even tells them, look into the heavens, but they won't look. Because they don't have their eyes on Jesus, thus they're doing what they're doing. They have their eyes on eradicating him. But he has his eyes on Jesus. And even in that moment, even as Saul, who we'll talk about in two weeks, God will radically redeem his life. And he, who's a persecutor of the church, will write more of the New Testament than anybody else. He will lead the charge to the Gentiles. He's standing there watching Stephen die in the persecution of the church. But Stephen's unfazed. He has his eyes on Jesus. That's why he has peace. Because he made a decision a long time ago. It is well with my soul. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what goes on. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. He had decided that he was not going to try to make the world happy or the establishment happy or mankind happy. That he was simply going to have his eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of his faith. And that even in the very middle of his death, he's able to call for the, for the forgiveness of those who are, who, are, who are killing him in that moment. Why? Because his eyes were on Jesus. His heart was full of Jesus. Everything was about Jesus. And I'm telling you, it's an example of how we, as a persecuted church, should respond. Yes, full of the Holy Spirit. Because we're going to need wisdom and guidance and direction. And we're going to need the Holy Spirit to fill our mouths in those moments when we don't know what to say. Yes, with boldness. Because there's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. It's not that you like it, but it's going to be there. He goes head to head with these guys. For 52 verses, if you read it, he goes line after line. I don't even have time. It would take me two hours to dissect what he says and show you how it connects. But he walks through the tapestry of the Old Testament all the way down to present Christ and the fact that they were the ones that rejected him. But in the end, he has peace because he's decided to live life, palms up. Great sermon, Aaron, but what does that have to do with me today? I'm so glad you asked that question. Again, I go back to the two questions that I asked you at the beginning of the message. One, what or how would you respond to the possibility of having to die for being a follower of Jesus Christ? That's exactly what happened to Stephen. And the second question that I asked you was simply this. What are you living for? Because you cannot live until you know that for which you are willing to die. May 1st, two weeks ago, I'm on a conference call where we're going to 
discuss a need in a, in a prominent Arabic-speaking city in the Middle East. I am told that I can't tweet this. I can't put this on social media. Everybody that's on the call has been vetted, basically. The missionary, who's a U.S. citizen, has to go to a different country in order to make this call and have this conversation with us because of the severity. We are asked not to use his name, whether we're speaking in public or putting anything in print or in writing, because it could cause for he and his family who are living in this area of the world to actually die, to be killed, to be martyred. We're also told that there's very limited things that we could say, and so we requested that it be bullet pointed for us, and I'm going to share that excerpt from you to you from that conference call when we talk about the persecution of the church. It's a Middle Eastern Arabic-speaking city that carries considerable political significance. If I gave you the name of the city, you would all know it because you hear it on all the news media outlets. We're told that there are cell groups of believers that are meeting regularly in this particular city that has more than two dozen mosques throughout the city. We're told that if we specifically tell how many mosques there are, that those that are listening, or if it's put in print, will know exactly where it is, and they will begin, begin to go on to a witch hunt in order to find these believers and these cell groups that are meeting in these mosques, these Christ followers, and they will eradicate not only them, but their families and even their extended families. They protect their identities and they stay organized, listen to this, by copying an organizational structure of the two prominent radical Islamist groups operating in the Middle East. You know who they are. Each cell group is comprised of no more than eight persons. The leader of the cell group is the only one who knows all eight members of the group. He does not know the identities or the location of the other cell members in any other cell group. Only one central leader knows the identities of all the other cell leaders. One person knows all 24 cell leaders. Each cell leader only knows who the lead is, and they know the identities of just the people in that group. The other eight people do not know the identities of the people in that group. Many of these believers are new converts, and a large number are sheiks or community leaders. This is happening right now, and this is not just happening in this city, but it's happening over and over and over again. And you don't see this on the news because, again, they, they would die for their faith. One reason for meeting in mosques is because it's, it, is, it is not safe to meet in homes because some of the believers' families do not even know Jesus, and if they could, would be discovered, um, there would be problems. They would die. So they don't even go home and tell their spouses that they're followers of Jesus Christ or their kids because they'll basically, in essence, be turned over to ISIS or to, to radical Islamist groups that will come in and kill them and destroy them and their families. Mosques are open 24-7 for people to come and go and to pray. So these cell groups, this is what's so cool to me, are able to have access to the mosque. And so they meet in private areas or corners of the mosque, and they have Bible studies and conversations about Jesus. If someone outside the group passes by or sits down with them, the conversation topic changes. In addition to the studies, they're able to go into adjacent showering facilities, which are located in these mosques, in order to do baptisms. So when someone gets saved, 
Instead of at the Germantown campus, we have a large baptismal tank. We'll be doing baptisms, I believe, next weekend. Public for everyone to see. They go into a shower in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have more than 24 cell groups meeting to study the Bible and have baptisms inside mosques throughout a significantly important and symbolic Arab Muslim city in the Middle East today meeting. That's just stinking cool to me. I think I give for the sake of the gospel. No, let me give you two testimonies that were given to us. A mother and her teenage son who were secret believers in Jesus Christ. This is real time, folks. This is just, I just got this two weeks ago. It was on the, on, the, on the call. They were listening to an audio recording of the Bible in their home, following along with a printed Bible. When the father or the husband simply, suddenly came in and found them, and he found they were reading the Bible, he beat his son unconscious and tried to kill his wife. They, they spent two weeks in the hospital, and the father was jailed overnight. Later, the wife told the husband, I love you, and your son loves you, and Jesus loves you. The next day, when his son got home from the hospital, he said to his father, I love you, mom loves you, and Jesus loves you. This is awesome. This is what I'm about to tell you is happening at, re at record number in the Middle East. That night, the husband had a dream in which the Lord appeared to him and said, your wife loves you, your son loves you, and I love you. The next day, this man gave his heart to the Lord, was baptized, and is now one of these cell, in one of these cell groups secretly meeting in a mosque. Just recently, a Muslim man came to faith in Jesus Christ and joined one of the cell groups. This man is an influential and well-known figure in a radical Islamist organization. He's on videos on YouTube promoting the organization and has been very key uh, and a very public figure of this group for a while. But now he serves Jesus secretly. The 21st century church is still under persecution. What I'm talking about is not something that may happen. It's something that's happening now. So what, Aaron? What does this mean? Well, you tell me. The Bible says as followers of Jesus Christ, we'll stand before God and we'll give an account of what we've been given and how we've lived our lives. We won't have to give an account on whether or not we're going to heaven or hell, because if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we know that we're going to heaven. But we'll stand before God, and we'll stand in line, and our name will be called, and God will basically will be standing there to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So what will it be like to stand in line? Not me, you. behind a couple or a family, just like I read you, who were beaten and almost left for dead because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And the husband receives a radical conversion and is not able to openly worship God, is not able to openly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, but persecuted he stands before Jesus and he calls him by name. The Bible says this is how it will go. And on that day, what about the pastor behind you, the Iranian pastor that two years ago, they came into his home, symbols of God minister. They raped his daughters in front of him and killed them, raped his wife and killed her. And all he had to do to stop the madness was simply to renounce who Jesus Christ was and to confess 
that Muhammad was God. And in the end, they kill him. I don't know. But what I do know is that the church in the 21st century is still under persecution. What I do know is that I will give an account for the freedoms that I've been given and how I live my life. And I can't stand up and say, that's wrong. I can't teach my children to stand up and say, no. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. There is but one, and his name is Jesus. There are not many ways. There is one way. And I don't mean to preclude anyone. I don't mean to exclude anyone. I don't think we should ever be mean to anybody. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't ask us to be mean to anyone. It matter of fact, it asks us to serve those who are far away from God. It asks us to love those who are unlovable. It asks those even that persecute us to love them. But the reality is, I didn't write the book. There is but one name under heaven by which man can be saved. And that name is Jesus. And when did it become wrong to proclaim that? When did it become wrong as a political uh, uh, person uh, to to proclaim a faith in Jesus Christ? When did it become narrow-minded and intolerant and, and bigotory to do that? When did it become a censorship against the pulpit in America, which historically has led a cultural charge and has been a voice of morality to the, to the country and to the world in which we live? When did it become wrong to proclaim that this is right and this is wrong? I tell you when it became wrong. When we sat down and we shut up and we let the entire world just do what they want to do because we don't want to offend anybody and we don't want to hurt anybody. Amen. And I'm not being mean. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be antagonistic. But I'm telling you, folks, that's why we're given the book. That's why we're given the Bible. To be able to see how do we deal with this? We don't back down, we don't shut up, and we don't let up. We walk full of the Holy Spirit. We walk in boldness into the battle. We live our lives unto the audience of one, and his name is Jesus. And we walk with a sense of peace because this life is not our own. And when he calls for me, he will have no problem knowing who I am. My banner is clear. My message is bold. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't know why I'm born into this great country with the freedoms that I have and others are not. But I do know that to whom much is given, much is required. And I ask you again, what are you living for? Are you willing to lay it all down for the sake of Jesus Christ and to follow him.